Well, what a wonderful song that we're, songs we're learning. God be merciful, be singing that as a response song. I love uh, the picture of Luke 18, the tax collector, sitting at the back row, beating his chest. And his prayer is, God, uh, be merciful to me. And yet at the chorus, at the end, when we sing um, and worship Christ uh, face to face, our, our song will be, God has been merciful to me. It will be in past tense. His uh, mercy would be assured uh, at the end of our lives. And we will declare that God has indeed been merciful. What great truths we are learning from the Word and what great truths God is granting us to uh, sing together as a body of believers. Uh, we're savoring the Gospel and by it, our worship, our praise time, our fellowship is so much more sweeter, so much more uh, uh, heart-enlarging, heart-encouraging uh, because the Gospel is at the center. Well, thank you, Brian, for sharing with us. Uh, your heart and your uh, faithfulness to your to the flock ministry. Um, I think I first met Brian tenth um, grade in high school, and he was the same height then. So, uh, um, and uh, been a joy to have him join our church and married, and uh, and to see him grow as a man of God and uh, serving alongside with us. And I know that uh, those of you who are in South Bay, you're blessed to have. Uh, Brian and Jen as your your servants, your those who are caring for you, caring for your your souls. Thank you, brother. Well, uh, so last night I was at a wedding, and it was an outdoor wedding, and uh, I was facing the sun, so I got several shades darker through the service, and uh, I was quite I was drenched in my own sweat underneath my suit. But later that night, we're um, sitting down at the reception, watching the slideshow, and um, you know, just <laughs> one thing's on my mind: what's the score? <laughs> so I'm thinking, James, this is not right. It's a dear brother, Paul. I've known him for over 20 years. <laughs> I should just, you know, focus on his wedding and watch the slideshow and be happy for him. And then I check my score, and we're down by five. And I go, okay, James, it's not right. You know, <laughs> you're a pastor. You, should, you know, you're you should be an example. What's the score again? <laughs> and so at the end, it was a close game. We're all crowded around, and uh, we started jumping up and down. And Lakers won. And I think people were thinking, wow, they, they really love Paul. <laughs> They're really happy for their, you know. So again, how motivation is so important, right? Motivation is determinative. So I was rejoicing for them. I really was. But that moment, I got lost in Laker fever. So what a great day yesterday. <laughs> I came home and, you know, before I can really focus on today, I had to watch Laker highlights like, like at least five times. <laughs> and so, all right. Well, Pastor Dan has been faithfully teaching our Cornerstone Bible Institute uh, Saturday mornings, and I've heard so many good reports about um, what they are learning, what God has been doing in that ministry. Uh, God is uh, using uh, Dan to 
really open up the scriptures and uh, really bless hearts. I think we're learning to uh, understand systematic theology to the key of the gospel. Before, these were disconnected truths that we had to strive to connect to our lives. But I think through the gospel, we see how much more beautiful all these truths are. Because these are truths of our Father who has so loved us, He has sacrificed His only Son, and we, He has adopted us into His family, and you know, we are His, and we, He is our Abba Father. And I've heard just being just a, a wonderful time. A student wrote to us after yesterday's class. A student wrote this, God is working powerfully in your attempt to equip and raise up leaders in our church. Thank you so much for your faithful service to Christ in teaching and preaching the word of word to me and to our church family. Quoting Luke 24:33, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? And so it is with my heart. My heart is burning within as you open up the scriptures in your lives. What seemed like mere words with some power is now infinite power unleashed because the gospel is setting those words free and giving life to words that once seemed so lifeless at times. What once seemed to stay in my mind and drip ever so slowly into my heart, much less my life, is now quickly traveling to my heart and slowly making inroads into my life. I want to thank you for studying, working, laboring to set me and many others like me free from the bondages of religion and to point us to the gospel where there is a fountain from which we will never thirst again. A fountain that not only gives life, but sustains life and refreshes the soul enough to last a lifetime of sanctification. Words seem too inadequate to express how thankful I am but for now, that is all I have. I am so grateful to be chosen by Christ and be part of this incredible body of believers. Though my life is racked with sin and weaknesses as always, I make myself available to you to use and direct in any service that might seem fit to build up the precious body of Christ. Your labor is not in vain. Your reward is in heaven. But the Lord is producing fruit here and now as well. So what a wonderful testimony of someone that is just growing and experiencing much uh, grace uh, through CBI. We ask you to pray uh, for Pastor Dan and those students that are in that class, that God might pour out His blessings and uh, that they will bear much spiritual fruit all to His glory. Well, we're continuing our study in our, in our, in Second Timothy. Uh, chapter 2, um, share with you a little bit about um, my heart behind uh, last week's uh, difficult sermon. Um, if you were here, uh, you heard me uh, open my heart and uh, share with you um, my sad stories, the many disappointments I've experienced uh, in ministry thinking that these men were reliable and they were not. It turned out not to be the case. My foremost motivation in doing that was not to, uh, it wasn't to like, 
don't know, bum you guys out or, or, or produce any kind of guilt. Like, I hope, I pray, you know, guilt, no guilt in life. If there's guilt, it ought to drive you to Christ. And Christ vanquishes that guilt. The cross demolishes it, destroys it, mortifies it. By faith in Christ, we have no guilt in life. Any guilt is our religion, our pride, our moralism, self-reliance, trying to usurp and undermine the gospel of free grace. Guilt has no place in Calvary. It drives us to Calvary. But once we are in Christ, it is eradicated. So I pray no one felt like, oh, did I disappoint James? Or is he talking about me? Or, oh, I need to do ABC to not disappoint the elders or the pastors. That has no place among the Christian church. You know, at, at school, at work, in the world, yes, you know. We do things out of guilt and obligation. We do things out of duty, civic duty or, or such, but not in the Christian church. My motivation in sharing those things last week was to highlight the importance of verse 1. It really is. And I, 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 I pressed that and I pressed it again this morning because uh, it is so, it is, it is, um, our natural inclination to overlook this passive imperative. In our pride, we don't think we need that much grace. We don't think we need to be that dependent upon Christ. So we jump to these active imperatives on things that we are to do. And my experience has been that after doing that for many years and getting punched in the face getting knocked down and humiliated, that I now see the importance of verse 1. That verse 2 and 3 are impossible to entrust to reliable man and to suffer for the gospel as a good soldier of Christ is impossible apart from being, strength, being strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I share these personal stories so that you might learn from my mistakes that you don't learn it the hard way by way of experience. That you will learn it, you know, God's way, God's intended way through the Holy Scriptures. That as you study, and that later on Paul says, think over these things. God will give you insight. That is God's intended way for us to learn and grow rather than by way of Ah, experiencing heartache and sorrow and disappointment. I share these things to save you from learning it the hard way. Now, um, one, one insight I, I received last week is uh, I, I see now the reason for my such strong response of discouragement, disappointment, and even losing my heart because... Uh, of uh, of these people, it was due to my idol of dependence. Um, the idol of dependence. Uh, you know, I'm a you know Luke 15, the parable. Sons, I'm the younger son, and if you 
If you know me at all, you'll know James is the younger son. He's the guy checking Lakers scores at a wedding that he just presided. <laughs> right, so I'm the guy. Right, so because I'm the younger son, I don't trust myself. I don't have a high view of myself. I don't believe in myself. Um, uh, I, I distrust myself. And at the same time, I love Cornerstone. I, I want so much for her to grow, so much for her to experience all the blessings that God has in store for her. So as a younger brother, I see my inadequacy. Therefore, instead of trusting in Christ, instead of uh, depending upon the gospel and hoping in Him, because of, of my idol of dependence, I have put my trust in people. I have put my trust in, in these men and placed my hopes in them. That through their life and conduct and ministry, um, Christ Church here at Cornerstone will be built up and sanctified. And uh, when and idols always fail, fail us. I, I don't blame them. I blame myself because that's, that's my fault. That's my sin. That's my evil. That's my idolatry. Idols always turn on us, disappoint us. Idols never are never faithful to their promises. Um, when it's revealed that they are just mere human beings, just like the rest of us, because of my idolatry, because I gave them power, I gave them authority, I gave them uh, my trust. My response is one of, uh, of discouragement and one of uh, worldly sorrow. That was, um, you know, one way, and that was my way of going astray. Uh, the opposite is also true. Uh, I, I, as I looked, looked, looked at this further this week, some have the idol of dependence, but some have the idol of independence. Um, they're like the older brother types. They have uh, such high view of themselves. They see themselves as so reliable, able, so proud, that they don't trust other people. They don't depend on anyone else but themselves. And um, they want others to depend upon them. They want, their ego is how many people are dependent upon them. Their source of um, self-worth, self-value, their identity is how they are holding all these things together for others. They want to be the hub they want to be in the spotlight. They love to rule and lead. They get an ego boost in leading. That's the idol of uh, dependence. And of course, um, idols fail us. And so they, they, they fall short. They fail. Or worse, they get criticized. Right? They get exposed. And so they fall apart and they get discouraged and lose heart. So there's both ways of uh, idolatry in ministry. Both ways of uh, failing to fulfill 2 Timothy 2.2. Entrusting the reliable men out of idolatry or not doing it out of idolatry of self, of independence. And again, the only uh, way out is the gospel. The gospel, God's grace. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the way out. 
by the gospel, we are set free from depending on people for God's work. Through the gospel, we see that the source of all spiritual fruit is Jesus Christ. The source is never a person. It's never a group of people, never an institution. It is Jesus Christ. Uh, Dan and I were talking a few weeks ago on how, you know, we, we never, like, liked the Gospel of John as preachers. And, uh, I had to really, um, kind of force myself to preach the Gospel of John. Preachers don't like the Gospel of John because there are so few imperatives. There are few, so few, like, applications that you can preach, uh, the Gospel of John. The other synoptic, synoptic Gospels are easier to preach because there's so many things you can just harp on people, right, and just yell at people and, uh, you know, call people to do. But the Gospel of John is all about who Jesus is. It's all about Jesus saying, I was talking to Janice on this week and, and she was telling us this too, how Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Right? Come to me and you'll have light. I am the living bread. Come to me and you'll be You'll be satisfied. I am the living water. Drink from me and you will never thirst. You have a fountain springing forth from within. Uh, I am the good shepherd. I will lay down my life for you. Right? I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am, I am, I am. That's replete to the Gospel of John telling us we are to go to Him. We are to trust in Him, depend upon Him, hope in Christ for everything. For our salvation, for our sanctification, for our ministry, for our family, for, for going to heaven with Him. It is going to Jesus, believing in Him, resting in Him, hoping, leaning on Him. Gospel tells us don't depend on religion. Don't hope in religious people. But hope in Christ. Trust in Christ. Lean upon Him. And He will give us all that we need. He will give us everything we need for, for our lives. Uh, gospel delivers us from sin of dependence, the idolatry of dependence, and also... The flip side, the gospel also delivers us from the idol of independence. That idol at the core is a strange mixture of uh, pride and insecurity. There is a there is definite pride there because high view of self, but insecurity because they do so much of what they do out of uh, wanting praise from people. Right. They do it so much out of um, wanting applause and attention and appreciation. Their self-worth is based on how many are are dependent upon them. It's a, you know, you know, for as a pastor, I experience both. It's a schizophrenic experience at times because I depend on people, but there's independence as well, and it's a miserable way to live. The fruits of uh, this idolatry of independence are, are, some symptoms are anger, bitterness, judgmental attitude, you know, constantly 
belittling, belittling other people's uh, struggles, other people's uh, trials or temptations, because you have a delusion of grandeur. You're, 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 soft, you're so important compared to others because of how much you uh, support others that you belittle other people's uh, pain and you're constantly looking down on others. Again, the way out is uh, the gospel. The gospel frees us from this idolatry. Um, we see we see that through the lens of Christ. And I, I read this from Honey from the Rock by Pastor Thomas Wilcox, a Puritan pastor. A precious sermon. It's online. Let's Google it. I mean, was so so sweet that we printed it out and gave it to all the men of our church at the men's retreat. And he exposed uh, one of my you know strongest, like maybe clearest um, misconception about Christ. Um, the Bible tells us that in our Lord's earthly ministry, he loved the prostitutes, he loved the tax collectors and drunkards, not because they were <laughs> sinning. But because they saw their sins, they were coming to Christ. Key distinction. He doesn't love sinners because they sin. They love sinners when they're repenting of their sin. So when these drunkards and pastors saw their, their corruption and their evil and depravity, and they, they were repenting and they were running to Jesus, asking for help, asking to be set free, he loved them. And those who are proud of their legalism, their moralism, their self-righteousness, Christ, I mean, He says, you, brood of vipers, you serpents, you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs, you're bound for hell. The deepest, darkest part of hell is reserved for you. He, he rebuked them, He censured them, he spoke to them in the harshest terms because they were trying to establish their own righteousness instead of leaning, leaning upon the righteousness given to mankind through the gospel of His Son. Well, post-ascension and post-my salvation, somehow it got into my heart that now, as Christians, Christ loves those who are righteous in their Christian lives, who are so strong and so mature, they're so doctrinally sound that they don't need Jesus anymore or they don't need Him as much. They're, they're independent. They're secure. They're confident because of their knowledge, because of their experiences, because of their many ministerial accomplishments that they're secure. That's mature Christianity. And those are the people who are laboring in the ministry that Christ is pleased with and Christ loves. And those who are always weak and struggling with sin and they're running to Jesus and, and, and hungering for and desperate for and depending, dependent upon Him. And they're such weak believers. God is not as pleased with. Thomas Wilcox says, and I, that's so true. No. Hebrews 13.7 Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right now, He loves those who are in sin 
and see the depth of their sin and they run to Him. They hope in Him. They trust in Him. They believe in the cross and not in themselves. They are still in the back row right? and they're beating their chest and they're still crying out, God, be merciful to me because I am a sinner. And those Christians who are so proud of their ministry, so proud of their quiet times and scripture memory and evangelism and missions and spiritual deeds and they're boasting in their hearts of their their resume, spiritual resume. Christ is the same response. All that is rubbish done apart from faith in Christ. How beautiful is that? The gospel sets sets us free. Those of us who have this idolatry of independence sets us free uh, from this enslaving, entangling sin and teaches us um, that He is better. He is worthy of our faith. He is worthy uh, of our trust and our hope. And the direct translation of that is, if we are dependent on the gospel, then we are dependent upon His church. We are dependent upon the means of grace that God has given to us, the local church. Uh, the body of Christ, God's spiritual family. Salvation is individual, we say this all the time, but sanctification is communal. As a Christian, your life is not Jesus and I. As a Christians, it's Jesus and us. Read the New Testament, and it's all about the local church. It's all about Romans 14. If we live, we live together. If we die, we die together. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. It's this idea of the of receiving love from Christ. The first translation of that is to loving one another. Giving love and receiving love. Practical way how we are set free from this idol of uh, independence uh, by the gospel and through his first means of grace, the local church. Say all of that uh, to again point to verse 1. Point to verse 1. If you, you know, maybe try it this week, you know, <laughs> try to fight that sin of dependence without God's grace. Maybe you have been trying, and you're just defeated. Or you try to defeat that idol of independence, and you'll, you'll soon find out uh, your pride and insecurity are so strong on your own strength. You're outmatched, outclassed. No, no chance of victory. The only hope that we have to... Uh, carry out his uh, active imperatives of entrust and suffer and carry out 
the rest of the imperatives throughout the scriptures, it is impossible without a right understanding of verse 1 and an intentional application, intentional um, trusting, uh, relying upon God's grace daily in our lives. That's the conclusion of last week's sermon. So let's get to the introduction of today's sermon. <laughs> Part 2 of our study on verse 2 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let me read it for you. Verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's that first active imperative in trust, uh, a particular word that Paul chose to, that reveals his uh, perspective about the gospel ministry. He considered it a stewardship. He considered it a trust, a, a deposit that God has personally given, that Christ personally gave to him for him to be a steward, a custodian, a guardian of. He spoke of this many times in his letters, 1 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. He says, We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. God has trusted us, given to us, this saving message. 1 Timothy 1, 11, In accordance with the glorious gospel of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. He was given this precious truth, and he himself entrusted it to Timothy. He deposited, handed it to Timothy, uh, to be its guardian, to be its uh, protector, to be its preacher. And the second, in Second Timothy 2.2, Paul looks ahead to future generations and he charges Timothy. He commands Timothy from a prison cell in his last letter, Timothy, you are not to bury this gospel. That's not how to uh, be a right uh, guardian of this truth. You're not to bury it underground. You're not to just protect it. I charge you to entrust it to reliable, reliable men who will also entrust it, teach it to others and faithfully pass it on to the return of Christ. And Christ Church on a human level is here today because Timothy was faithful. Those reliable men was faithful. We have a long line of reliable men throughout church history. That's why we study church history. We, we read it um, not as a cold like study, but like a family history. Like we read, like our, studying our own family lineage because it's not lineage by blood, but it's lineage by the gospel. We look at church history and we look at these men who, who, who stood for the gospel and, and without compromise preached this singular gospel of the scriptures, uh, we, we read of them with fondness because their faithfulness in passing it on 
is on a human level the reason that we still have the gospel with us to this day, that we are enjoying, that we are savoring, that is helping us, that's liberating us from the sin of idolatry of dependence and independence, that is bearing so much fruit in our own lives, in our church, and throughout the world on a human level. We, we thank Paul, Timothy, and all these men and women who have passed this down to us. Now, take note of verse 2, an important verse for our church, because this is a mandate to reproduce leaders, to identify, equip, and entrust this ministry of teaching to others. This charge is given to the local church, to the pastors, the leaders, the elders of the local church. It is a middle voice imperative. It is not passive. It is middle meaning, Timothy, you yourself do it. And telling all church leaders, it is your responsibility. It is your stewardship. It is your privilege, your responsibility to do this. Um, we are not to uh, outsource this responsibility. We are not. We are not to, um, you know, pass the buck and, um, for, you know, just idle, uh, by, the, by way of idol of dependence or independence, kind of pass this and not, not submit to this command as a church. The raising up of leaders, teachers, full-time pastors is the joyful responsibility of the local church. But, um, I mean, we're kind of sharing our, our philosophy here. We're, we're, we're standing here and we're not saying, um, you know, everybody's wrong and we're right. We're just saying this is what we believe. If someone could convince me from the scriptures that we are in error, I would be the first to repent. But from all that I can see from the New Testament, there is no argument, valid argument, that we are to hand this responsibility over of raising of leaders to another institution. It seems to me the Bible is very clear that the best place uh, for leaders to rise up is in the context of the local church. But uh, the, the reality is um, that is not happening in the church today. It is kind of a foreign thing. It seems kind of audacious, a, a uh, kind of like prideful, kind of um, far-reaching for a small church like ours to, to attempt to raise our own pastors. We, we're getting ahead of ourselves. We're we're thinking too highly of ourselves. James, are we being sober-minded and pr or are we being proud by doing this uh, when everybody else is outsourcing it to others? I ask myself this question. Why are we uh, abdicating, neglecting this stewardship? Um, came up with a few reasons why I, I think many, of, many churches are failing to do submit to... Uh, 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, 
Uh, first of all, I think there is, um, you know, I, again, I love dependence and independence. I think there's a, it's individual, but there's also inst- institutional idol of dependence. Institutionally, as a church, uh, we can we can have this idolatry of not because we don't trust in the gospel, we don't believe that the gospel has adequately provided for the local church. Instead of trusting in Jesus upon His gospel and His grace to produce fruit, and one of which is a leader, teacher, pastor who will serve the church, we. Uh, Entrust other institutions like Bible colleges and seminaries to do its work. Churches have an awful case of inferiority complex because of this idol of dependence. They're easily, far too easily intimidated uh, by the scholarship of these institutions and so they are abdicating and neglecting this uh, stewardship this trust given to the local church. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, Our chief aim is to train preachers and pastors rather than scholars and masters of, master of arts. Let them be scholars if they can, but preachers first of all, and scholars only in order to become preachers. The universities are the fit places for producing classical scholars. Let them do it. Our work is to open up scriptures and help men to preach so that they will impress God's word into fellows' hearts. What he's saying is, if we are to raise scholars and academicians, the local church can't do it. We need to go to grad school. We need to go to universities, PhD programs or MDiv programs and seminaries. But if the call is to raise up teachers and preachers and pastors, uh, the church can do it. We can raise up pastors. We have no reason uh, to be intimidated. Second reason for this outsourcing is, the current outsourcing of this to these institutions is the professionalization of the ministry. Right. Professionalization of the ministry. Being a pastor is now a, a career. It's like you want to be a doctor, you go to medical school and you come out with a degree and a diploma and all that debt you incurred, it's okay. Because if you get a job, it'll more than pay for that school debt. And so you graduate and you have a career, you get a, you get a, sign a contract, you get a pay package, and uh, you have a, a title, a prestige, and you have a career for your life. Same thing for um, law, lawyers and accountants and dentists and optometrists, and the Christian church has uh, conformed to this secular model. A pastor is a shepherd. It's a blue-collar picture, taking care of sheep. You don't need an advanced degree to take care of sheep. And that's the picture Christ modeled for us. The New Testament teaches us. But uh, the model we see today is these men go to a graduate school called seminary. They get a degree, and they come out, and they apply for jobs. 
and they negotiate over salary, benefits, vacations, uh, retirement package, and they actually get hired by a church, and that's their profession. Uh, I, I agree with Pastor John Piper. This is uh, killing the church today. One of the, I think, a major reason for the weakness of the church is the pastors who are looking for jobs and professions and careers instead of the cross. They're looking for legitimacy. They're looking for some kind of uh, legitimate profession in this world rather than a menial work of humbly laboring in the local church. Ian Bounds said, The preacher is not a professional man. His ministry is not a profession. It is a divine institution, a divine devotion. Pastor Piper wrote, Pastors are being killed by the professionalizing of the pastoral ministry. The mentality of the professional is not the mentality of the prophet. It is not the mentality of the slave of Christ. Professionalism has nothing to do with the essence and heart of the Christian ministry. The more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we will leave in our wake. For there is no professional childlikeness, Matthew 18.3. There is no professional tenderheartedness, Ephesians 4.32. There is no professional panting after God, Psalm 42.1. I think God has exhibited shepherds as last of all in the world. We are fools for Christ's sake, but professionals are wise. We are weak, but professionals are strong. Professionals are held in honor. We are in disrepute. We do not try to secure a professional lifestyle, but we are ready to hunger and thirst and be ill-clad and homeless. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the refuse of the world, the outscoring of all things. And then he screams out, Brothers, we are not professionals. We are outcasts. We are aliens and exiles in the world. This professionalization of the ministry is a constant threat to the advancement of the gospel and the offense of the gospel. It is a threat to the profoundly spiritual nature of our work. I have seen it often. The love of professionalism kills a man's belief that he is sent by God to save people from hell and to make them Christ-exalting spiritual aliens in the world. God, deliver us from the professionalizers. Banish them from our midst. That is uh, the prevailing uh, uh, mindset and the method in the church today. But it is killing us. It is Devastating spiritual devotion. Third and final reason um, why churches are abdicating this stewardship is because the laziness of pastors. 
laziness of pastors. A main threat of pastors being lazy. And so, it's a lot of work raising up leaders. A lot of work raising up pastors. It's kind of like, uh, you know, I understand having four kids, why people wouldn't want kids. Why? Because life is so much easier. Right? So I can't just speak honestly here. I, if I offend you, I talk to Bob. Right? If I <laughs> complain to him. But I, I, having kids is a lot of work. So if you choose not to have kids, man, like, it's easier. You don't have to, uh, you know, wake up early and stay up late. You don't have to change diapers. You don't have to clean up after them. You don't have to clean up after their mess. Uh, you don't have to, you have to, you can, you don't have to work as hard. Um, you don't have to uh, confront yourself because you see your own failures in their lives. You see, you don't have to, you don't see your own character defects <laughs> in their lives. So it's, you become more secure, more confident, and you become less vulnerable. Like once you're married, you become more vulnerable. Once you have children, you become like completely vulnerable. And again, Keller said your heart's tied to your most unhappiest child. And and so if you're, right, don't have children, then your heart's tied to yourself or your spouse, so you're happier. So it's easier not to have children. Same thing for ministry. Uh, it's our laziness. We'd rather just do the work of ministering to the church and overlook the most difficult work and the most, maybe the more important work of working on the church and carrying out the stewardship of raising up leaders. Uh, this is the charge given to pastors, but we don't want to get messy. We don't want to, you know, be vulnerable to other, other, other men and be exposed and have iron sharpened iron. So we just send them to Master Seminary. And you talk to Herb Busnitz, and you will say, we want to go out of business. We want, PMS should not exist. Right? You talk to Herb Busnitz, Dick Mayo, and they'll say, we exist because churches are weak. We hope that churches one day will be so strong and mature, they will raise their own pastors and leaders, and we won't be needed any longer. But, because um, we pastors are prone to be um, lazy and proud and selfish. We want to just protect ourselves. We'd rather just send guys and have other, other groups do this work. Um, it's more of an informational teaching this morning. Share with you what we believe. Um, we believe in Second Timothy two two. We we stand here humbly and we say, this is our heart aspiration as the leaders of the church to raise our own servants, ministers, uh, small group leaders, and also raise our own pastors. And uh, Joe's our first guinea pig. He's our first experiment. And then a few years, maybe we'll go back to seminary. <laughs> it's not working. <laughs> but I, I hope, I believe. All right. <laughs>
the gospel. God's grace will help us. Um, we believe it. We believe um, God has given given us uh, the Word of God, which is able to equip a man, man of God, for every good work. Second Timothy three sixteen. Um, let me just share with you uh, how many reasons do I have? Four reasons why we believe we 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 must raise our own pastors. Raise our own full-time pastors here in our church. Without degrees, without diploma, we are not accredited, no recognize uh, our training. We believe we must do it here. First is, um, give my humble, you know, I, I know we're recording this, so i got to be careful, but I'm going to say it. I humbly believe the classroom is the worst way to train a pastor. The worst way to train a pastor is sitting him in a class and have him take quizzes, tests, and write papers. And regurgitate answers and give him a grade and give him some uh, cum laude or summa or whatever at the end. And give him letters after his name. If you want to be a doctor, please go to school. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? It's going to be my doctor. I hope you went to school. If you want to be a lawyer... You know, hope for, you know, your clients that you went to school, you know, law school, dentist, so forth. But a pastor, no. Now, if, if I was saying this by myself, man, like, that's kind of, James, that's kind of prideful, like, for you to just think this. But I can say this what, with some semblance of confidence because this is what I believe because this is what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones believed. Right? This is what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones believed. Um, at the, at the inaugural service of Westminster Seminary, Dr. J. Gresham Machen uh, stated that a theological seminary is an institution of higher learning whose standards should not be inferior to the highest academic standards that anywhere prevail anywhere else. Lloyd-Jones dissented in the strongest terms. He vehemently opposed this. He saw this as opposing the whole approach of training ministers in the New Testament. E. Martin Lloyd-Jones explained, quote, training pastors and preachers is unlike every other kind of training. He said, we are in an entirely different realm here. He was adamant that there was to be no preparation for degrees and diplomas and examinations for the pastoral ministry. Because, he said, quote, of the spiritual nature of the education there is a sense in which it is almost blasphemous that there should be an examinations, there should be examinations in connection with this knowledge with which we are concerned. And that we should get graded, that we should get diplomas and be legitimized by this world. And uh, my experience in ministry proves this out. When it's GPA and seminary had nothing, has nothing to do with ministry. Alright. Having uh, some accomplishments and, and being able to like study and regurgitate and process information has nothing to do with real ministry. They're totally distinct. If you're going to be an academic scholar, of course, right? I mean, I look at Peter Smith and he was not a summa cum laude, not even close. He told me his GPA, right? <laughs> but wow, what a pastor. C.J. Mahaney didn't. 
barely graduated high school. I, he had a GED. Right? Doesn't have a college degree. Never went near a, a Bible school. Right? Mark Driscoll, right? I think he's doing online courses <laughs> for a Western seminary. He's just, just finishing it up. And uh, God's using him. Right? This Western Occidental model of education has nothing to do with uh, uh, the biblical model of raising up pastors. Secondly, uh, it must be in the church because seminary can only transmit information. They're a repository of, uh, of, of knowledge and truth. They cannot entrust life and doctrine. They cannot mentor. They cannot disciple. There is no life on life shepherding and training. There is no testing of character. There is no observing a man's life, his family, his friendships, relationships. There is no observing of a man, how he conducts himself in his finances, conducts himself with the world. It is purely academic. It's so narrow and it's so shallow and it's so limited. And afterwards you get a degree and that qualifies you to be a pastor of a church, an elder of Christ's church. There is so much more into being a pastor than, than a degree. We look at how Christ, our Lord, trained leaders. The New Testament provides us with a clear biblical basis for how to train ministers. The apostles were taught by the Lord Himself. Mark 3.14 He chose them that they might be with Him. There wasn't class hours. There wasn't office hours. They dwell together for three years. And Peter and John, for example, are, are described as men who had no formal education that would be recognized by the world. They were unlettered, Acts 4.13. 4, they were ordinary men. They had not studied in any of those rabbinical centers of learning. They had not studied with anyone, any of those famous rabbis. They were like their master. People, people said of Jesus, John 7.15, they marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They were trained. Life on life by Jesus. They had the best mentor they could find. Jesus didn't invent this. I mean, this is throughout the Old Testament. Right? Joshua had Moses. Elisha had Elijah. Apostles had Jesus. Timothy, Titus. They had the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul called Timothy his son in the faith. Spoke of him. I have no one else like him. They, they labored together. They wept together. They loved one another. Paul observed the totality of Timothy's life and approved him. Laid his hands on him. And that's where it happens in the church. We see a man and we see how he conducts himself in his, in his life, how he relates to his parents, how he relates to his siblings, how he relates to his friends, how he relates to his people in the church. We see him date a girl. And we look at who he chooses to date. We look at how he dates. We look at how he proposes. We consider his engagement period. Consider his integrity and dignity and purity to the whole process. We look at his wedding. We look at his reception. We look at his honeymoon. We look at his finances. We look at how he raises his children. And through that, 
we see God affirming a man who was set apart for the gospel to be God's man for Christ's church, to proclaim his truth to his people. A seminary is not built to do that. That's not the function of a seminary. The third reason why I believe uh, must be the local church, why we believe it's the local church is uh, the church approach destroys the professional approach to ministry. Destroys the professional approach to ministry. When I was in my sabbatical, I was talking to a pastor, uh, John Payne of uh, Sovereign Grace Gilbert, and we had breakfast together, and he was raised, he's like a Sovereign Grace guy. He was saved there, grew up there, he's a pastor there. And he said, James, can I ask you a question? Uh, yeah, sure. You know, Is it true? I heard rumors that guys go to seminary and they get a diploma and then they candidate at different churches and then they get hired to be pastors of a church that they don't know? And I'm like, oh, how cute. Look at this guy. <laughs> so, so innocent. Like, Man, don't go out there into the real world. Like, stay here. Like, so pure and like, you know, like, like, John, like, that's the norm. What you, what you're experiencing, you know, that's the exception. That's the reality. That's what's happening. That's throughout the world. Alright, guys approach the pastoral ministry as a career. And they are candidate at churches. And they go to churches that they don't know and they get hired. And then within two years, when the wolves come, they run. Why? Because they're professionals. They're hired hands. They don't know the people. They don't care for the people. Pastors don't go down with the ship. No, pastors are the ones, right? First one's out. And that's the norm, John. What, what you experienced of just growing the church and becoming a pastor, and what you love the church as a member and now as a pastor, that is rare. Right. So when you have church-based raising up of pastors where there are no degrees, no diploma, no accreditation, no uh, candidating and a pay package, and there's no debt either, but there's no pay package waiting for you, then um, it destroys this uh, career mindset of um, of ministry destroys this what's happening so much where guys kind of lay hands on themselves and then appoint themselves by going to seminary and graduating and becoming elders. There's two ways, the two easiest ways to become pastors or elders right now is go to seminary or be a missionary. All right. You do that, then there's a backdoor way to all of a sudden you're a pastor, you're an elder, or you're a church leader. Without any scrutiny, scrutiny of your character, of your life, your doctrine. It destroys this um, professional approach to the ministry. And then finally, um, the fourth reason I believe it's the local church is Second Timothy 2.2. It is God's mandate, God's command. And he, he promises us we are inadequate. We are insufficient. We are weak. We are not able. That's why I believe he puts verse 2 right at the verse 1. God will give us grace. God will help us. God will strengthen us. Don't look at yourself. 
and out of idle dependence outsource this. Right? Depend upon Jesus and do this work and you will see God's grace bear fruit. Philip Everson um, of London Theological Seminary wrote this. He said, It is common sense that doctors should be taught by doctors, nurses by nurses, teachers by teachers. It is therefore no surprise to find the biblical evidence supporting common sense wisdom that those who are already in the ministry should teach those who are called to the ministry. Neither common sense nor biblical example has always prevailed in the Christian church when it has come to the training of preachers and pastors. Teachers with little or no preaching or pastoral experience have been given the responsibility of preparing people for the Christian ministry. Academics living in their cloistered world have often been the ones teaching the Bible and theology. Gardner Spring was scathing in his criticism of such men who know more of books than of men and more of theological halls than the pulpit. While it is necessary to bring in men who are experts in their fields, to give a lecture on some specific topic, the main part of the course should be in the hands of churchmen who have experience in the preaching and pastoral ministry. How much time has gone for our last remaining minutes? I want to um, focus on a small group of men that I believe God is moving in your heart to consider leadership, consider serving in ministry, leading ministry, maybe calling you to full-time ministry. There's got to be at least one or few or many men here with God is calling. I want to speak to them, but I want to speak to the whole church because it is our job to raise up these men. God's given them to us, and it's our stewardship, it's our joy to help these men grow, to protect them from their youthful lusts right from their foolish pride, and to nurture them and nourish them so that they might be, oh, the spurgeons of our generation that God wills. So it is for all of us, but I want to speak to the few men that God might be speaking to you. To the men of our church who have a desire to serve and lead, first, our counsel is, consider 1 Timothy 3.1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. But consider what it does not say. It says, if anyone aspires to the office of full-time vocational pastor, preacher, and teacher. He's talking about a lay elder here. So man, you ought to be aspiring not to be a pastor, not to be a vocational pastor or vocational full-time elder. No, your aspiration ought to be be a lay elder. It's the elder's job, 1 Timothy 5.17, to see if you are, as an elder, you're ruling well. You labor in preaching and teaching. That's our job to anoint you and say, you know what, you're more valuable full-time. You're more valuable part-time. You're more, your time is more valuable to serve in this manner. And we want to, because you're such an able leader, able preacher and teacher, we want to support you. Worker deserves his wages. That's our responsibility, not yours. Right. That's where I think people get mixed up. They think aspiring to be a full-time pastor is, is taught by the scriptures when it is not. It's office of overseer. That's a lay elder. Double honor elder is 1 Timothy 5.17. 
as you aspire to fulfill the qualities of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, make sure you're aspiring to these qualities because of your love for Christ's church and not because you love yourself. Make sure that you're striving to be blameless because you love Christ's church, not because you want others to love you. Because you love yourself. First Corinthians 13, 1, 2, and 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have no love for Christians, the local church, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You are to be motivated to pursue eldership, these qualities, because of your love for the church. If you are seeking to be a leader, pastor, or preacher, but you are not motivated by love for the church, then you are wholly unqualified. You are seeking to be a leader for personal gain, for your own ego, because you are glory hungry, because of your pride. If you want to be blameless so you can be a leader, if you're studying because you want to teach, you're not getting drunk because you need called an elder, there is a deep corruption in your heart that must be dealt with before you can even aspire to these qualities. The motivation must be Christ's love for you. And therefore, the first translation is you love the church. And because you love the church, you want to Grow in these qualities. Third, if you do love the church, and you see it proven and demonstrated in your life, then pursue these qualities. First Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Pursue these qualities. Being strengthened by the gospel and God's grace. Humbly endeavor to grow in these qualities outlined for us. First Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Three more. Um, and as you are pursuing these qualities, we would ask you pursue the pastors of our church. Pursue Dan. Pursue me. Make yourself available to us. A relationship is so important. Uh, you need to, uh, you know. Or Glenn McKenzie said, uh, one of those guys said this, uh, they've done 70 church plants and church plants that are pastored by guys who are private, they don't do well. The churches that thrive are the, are the pastors who are vulnerable, who are open and transparent. And that's so true. If you are a private person, you don't want to open your life to others and you don't want to be a pastor. <laughs> you don't want to be a church leader. But uh, if you want to, if you want to be a church leader and you're desiring to open up your life, open up your life to the church, and open up your life uh, to Dan and I, pursue us. Our hearts are wide open to you. We want to do Second Timothy two two, and we want to invest in future leaders. But that has to happen in the context of a relationship, not just Sunday morning and just formal. Formal times has to happen in the context of a relationship.
to pursue us. And then uh, pursue the ways in which we are training the church. Be faithful uh, as a member of Christ Church here. Be attentive to God's word when it's preached. Be faithful to second hour. Be faithful to communion, to our midweek meetings, to church events. Be faithful to ministry. And doubly for you, if you're desiring to serve and lead and even be a pastor, be faithful to CBI. Be faithful to CBI. That is how, we'll talk more about this in our communion service, but how we are endeavoring to equip our leaders of our church. If you desire to serve and lead the church, and you don't want to give up your Saturdays, then uh, ministry is not for you. Right? Just be a good member then. Right? Just be a good servant. And uh, if you don't want to give up your Saturdays, then you know leadership requires you to give up everything. But giving up Saturdays is nothing. And then finally, um, believe Second Timothy two two. Believe this is. The stewardship given to the local church. And the church, um, you will not miss out on anything by not getting these degrees and getting this training outside the local church. Um, what God has for you here, not because we're adequate, not because we're special, but because of the gospel, and because of the charge given to us, is sufficient for every need that you have. To be an able servant, an able pastor, and God wills an able preacher for Christ's church. Um, let us pray that God will do this in our lives. Second Timothy 2 2. I know much time has passed, but uh, would you take a few moments uh, to pray for. Uh, the reliable men of our church. God knows who they are. God knows um, who He has uh, to uh, serve and lead His church uh, as a church who are in need of their ministry. Let's take this time to pray for them. Uh, God, we are Humble that how you use human means to accomplish your uh, your plan of redemption for the whole world, which will result in your glory. Uh, we are humbled that you have used uh, weak vessels uh, throughout church history, beginning with the Apostle Paul and the Timothy, down through uh, a line of godly men and women, down to us. And as we have considered. Second Timothy 2.2, we now realize we cannot neglect or hand off this responsibility. It is charge given to us, and it is not to end with us. We are not to bury this gospel and bury this gospel ministry uh, or just keep it to ourselves for us to enjoy. It is our joyful task to pass it on and trust it to others, that they might continue this gospel ministry throughout this world until your return. Lord, we uh, pray that as a church, uh, 
we would rally around on this truth and empowered by your grace and confident in the gospel of Christ, humbly endeavor to raise up mighty men of God, mighty men who are fueled by your gospel, who have right doctrine and right life, who are passionate and zealous for your glory, who will preach your truth, preach your glorious gospel here and throughout the world. And that they will continue to do so and entrust this ministry to others as well, continuing this lineage until you return. We pray that you will grant us this joyful privilege to, to be a part of this process where we pray for the men that are considering and men that you are calling, men that you are um, drawing to yourself uh, to, to do this work. Lord, we pray that you would grant them much grace and grant them uh, humility, grant them uh, just complete trust in the gospel and Lord, you'll raise them up all to our benefit, knowing that as we invest in them, uh, the fruit that they produce, will, we will eat from and we will, we will enjoy. Lord, may you do, we pray that you do a mighty work in their lives. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.